We come now to uh, our uh, sermon uh, out of Ephesians chapter 1. If you would, please open uh, with me there uh, to Ephesians 1. Thank you, by the way, to uh, Rebecca and Mary Emmeline. Uh, they did not know they were going to be doing that. Uh, they found out about 20 minutes before. So, uh, so thankful for y'all willingness to uh, be able to step up to do that. Um, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, if y'all will recall with me, uh, we are in a sermon series called Ephesians Encouragement and You. And uh, the, the definition, the working definition that we've been using for encouragement is positive movement done by the Lord in this case, but that doesn't mean that we can't embody that encouragement likewise. Uh, but, but the reality of, of, of what we see in this letter to the Ephesians is a, a fullness of Christian doctrine, really a fullness of Christian practice. And, and as we look to see what that means for us, as, as we look to see what it is that we believe and, and what it means to put that belief into action, uh, we can't help but see God's positive, moving force in our life. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way, God himself. But he, he pushes us along this path of righteousness, right towards heaven. That's what the encouragement is. And, and so what, what we see then, as, as we're in chapters 1 and chapter 2 and 3, is that, is that we, we see God's encouragement through who he is and, and through what he embodies and through what he is revealing. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is, is the, if you wanted to say it like this, the doctrine part. What, what it is that we believe, the declarative sentences, verses 4, 5, and 6 are what we should do, the, the imperative sentences. But, but it doesn't mean that there's not positive force here. And, and we're going to see that with, really with a topic that can uh, garner, depending on where you're at, uh, certain furrowed brows uh, in the Christian community. Uh, it's dealing with God's sovereignty. It's dealing with that uh, a sometimes scary P word, predestination. Uh, but that's not Jeremiah's word, and it's not the Reformed Church's word. Uh, this is the Bible's word. And so if we are Bible-believing Christians, we must deal with this. And I am telling you that it is very encouraging for all of God's people. Our main point this morning is that God's sovereignty, that is his control, his, his uh, capital A, all controlling nature, is mysterious and also very encouraging. God's sovereignty is mysterious and encouraging. This is verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Uh, God, we can think a whole lot about a whole lot of things, and yet, God, in a sense, uh, you are the one who has done the thinking on this regard. You have chosen to reveal yourself, and you have done it in a special way. Thank you for these Bible verses and what they reveal. God, help us in some, uh, uh, actually not some small way, in a large way to grasp and hold on to the most encouraging reality that you are sovereign and that you are good and that you are God. Lord, would you show these things to us? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Change us as we go from this place in a positive way towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God, it endures, it stands, it remains forever. And we praise God for it. Here's our main point again. God's sovereignty is mysterious and at the same time encouraging. Our two points to get us there. We'll take up verse 4 first and we see there beginning and end. There is a beginning and an end to God's plan. And that's really nice. Really, there is no end, but you'll see what I mean with beginning and end. And then, secondly, uh, we'll see three Ps. Plan, purpose, and praise. Verses 5 and 6. And, and as we see these things, remember that... that uh, I am trying to lead us down an encouraging path as God has revealed it to us. So first then, we take up this, this point. Beginning and end, verse 4. Uh, just I'm going to read verse 3 so y'all have a little bit of context uh, for where we were last Sunday. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, and we shouldn't neglect the two words that are also in verse 4, as the Greek manuscript would put it, in love. There's a little bit of a hanging uh, participial phrase there that uh, I think is very uh, beautifully put. Uh, but, but we see that, that God has, has revealed to us here in verse 4 uh, a beginning and an end, and you kind of get what I mean when I say end, because, uh, because God's reign will never end. Our time with God will never end. As we sing Amazing Grace, well, even when we've been there 10,000 years, but we're still going to have no less days to sing God's praise, right? There, there is an eternity that we get to spend with God, and, and we actually touched on that uh, in the previous verses of Ephesians as, as we tried to consider and grasp what it means to deal with God's infinity, right? Maybe you remember that. If not, go back into those sermons and you'll see it. Uh, the engineering illustration I used, math, right? Uh, and infinity. But, but here, uh, we need to note a few things before we apply uh, this most wonderful text. We, we see that God has, has chosen us. That, that means his people. That, that God has chosen us within himself before the foundation of the world. Uh, our uh, children in Sunday school, I uh, see y'all. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to try to call you out on uh, the two big truths that we learn, but they're connected, right? In the book of Ruth, remember, the first big truth was that God has a plan. And then the second truth is that God, he knew us before we were even born. Isn't that so wonderful? We see that all through the scriptures. Ruth is a great place to see it because Ruth is a nobody from nowhere who was called somewhere to be the great-great-grandma of King David who would reveal Jesus in one of the most powerful ways in the Old Testament. But uh, what, what we see within these truths is that, is that God is, is doing a work and, and that this work began before his work of creation began. 
Let's really wrap our minds around this for a moment. God's love existed before an object of his love existed. God's desire to reveal himself uh, existed before uh, an object to reveal himself to existed. That is humanity. That is his people. And, And so as we think about God choosing his people before the world was created, we must begin to reckon with a reality that God's plan is is well beyond anything that within our finite minds we could grasp. Because it was there before we existed. Not just me in 1989, right? We're talking year zero, day one. Before that, while God existed in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he, his love for me and his love for every person who confesses in the Lord Jesus Christ was crystallized and true And as true as it is right now. That's a big truth. And it's a powerful truth. And and yet it goes on. Because that's just the first part of verse 4. Because because we see that even as God is doing this work. Even as we see this work uh, having a beginning. Which is even before the beginning. We see uh, that, that there's something that we're moving towards. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, this is the second part of verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That we should be holy and blameless. That is, in and of itself, a work of God. Uh, We cannot be holy and blameless apart from God doing a work which he began before we existed, which he is completing within our existence, and which we will see culminated when the world might say we stop existing. But that's the world. In reality, what happens is that we don't stop existing. We actually take a step into a truer reality. Where uh, things that were wrong, things that were corrupted, things that were smudged, things that were pockmarked due to the vast sin and sickness of this world, that those things will cease. The tears will be gone. The pain will be gone. The frustration will be gone. Those former things will pass away, the word tells us. And what will remain? God will remain. His people will remain. Righteousness will remain. His word will remain. Everything that is perfect and good and holy will remain. And and we will be perfect. We will be perfect without blemish. We will be blameless before God. And yet, we need to remember something very important here. Verse 4 doesn't come by itself. There's a verse 5 and a verse 6. And we need to begin to think through what it means for us to grapple with the truth that we are perfect and blameless before the Lord right now. In this sanctuary, those who are worshiping us via the live stream, if we are confessing in the Lord Jesus, in a sense, let's don't take this too far, okay? You can say, I am perfect before the Lord because of Jesus' work on my behalf. 
We must have the confidence to be able to say this as, as we transition to the plan and the purpose and the praise that spawns from God's sovereignty, which is mysterious, but it's also encouraging because who are we to say that we are perfect before the Lord? And yet we can. And, and what does that mean? That's our, that's our second point as we think about this beginning and ending, which really isn't a beginning and really isn't an ending, as, as God was doing this before time existed, so how could it begin? And as God is completing this at the end of time, but then it continues further, so it's kind of a joke point because it was before the beginning and after the end that God is doing this beautiful work of choosing us and of presenting us before himself, holy and blameless. He's doing it all, uh, what the theologians, what some people in books might say, uh, tell you is monergism, right? The work is done only by God. We begin to see something happen in the middle for us now, in time. We see a plan and we see a purpose and it spawns praise, verses 5 and 6. He, that is God in love, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. There is a plan. Remember the three P's for point number two. There is a plan, there is a purpose, and there is a spawning praise that comes from it. And, and within this plan, there is a continuum. And on this continuum, we might see a few things. We see that before time existed, that's way over here, okay? Way before time existed, uh, God's plan had already coalesced and was already crystallized. He knew. He knows. There never was a time he didn't know. It, it's not like he's coming up with this stuff in the moment, okay? God is God, and if we are to take him as he is presenting himself, which we must, we can begin to see that, that there is this, what can be at times a scary word, predestination. There is this predetermined moment where God himself has a plan for our lives, this, this choice that he has made before the foundation of the world. But, but there's also a continuing of that because that means something. If God knows us before we were formed, uh, if he knows our inward parts, right? If he, if he knew us before we were in our mother's womb, if, if, if God is really God, and if God is really all-knowing and all-sufficient and all-sovereign, if God is really who he says he is, and he's really who we confess him to be, that means then that with utter confidence we can say what it is I was telling you before. I'm perfect before God then. And therefore I'm very encouraged, even on the worst of weeks and days. There's a continuum. And way before time began, there are these big words that can offend us. But then, as we continue on the continuum, for some reason, it gets less offensive to people. Because as we go down this path, uh, and by the way, there's, a, there's something that's overarching as well that, that I, won't, I don't want you to miss, and it's in verses 5 and 6. But as we continue down this path, if God is choosing us, then we see that God must necessarily justify us. In other words, in his court, we must be found blameless. We must be found innocent for his word to come to pass. And that's where we see the gospel of Jesus beginning to bear itself out, right? The good news. I reminded the children of this 
What is the good news? What's the gospel? Jesus saves us. And do you know what he saves us from? He saves us from the guiltiness that we have uh, that we have put upon ourselves. If I'm driving 100 miles an hour uh, down 277 and a cop pulls me over for driving recklessly, I am guilty. And just the same, we are guilty before the Lord for breaking his law. And he sends his son Jesus who fulfills the law, who then takes our sin, gives us his righteousness that in the court of God, before the judgment throne, God says, are you guilty or are you innocent? With confidence, Christians must say, I am innocent because of what your son Jesus, what my king, what my defender has done for me. It's the good news that I have lived my life on and it's the good news that I will praise you for for the rest of time and beyond. That's the gospel. That's justification. We are justified before God. And yet, uh, everyone typically loves to love that. And yet, people actually get more excited as we go down the continuum. Because the plan continues. There is this, there is this behind the scenes moment of choice and of predestination as we see here in the word. Those, just to remind you, those are not my words. Those are God's words. And, and then we get into this reality of justification, of, of God doing a work that he might present us to himself, holy and blameless. But, but as we are on that path, in the meantime, there is another step on the continuum, which is sanctification. That's where God is slowly picking us up and setting us apart, away from the world and towards his kingdom. Right? That's what sanctification is. It's not being a better rule follower. Jesus would scoff at that. We must redeem the reality of what sanctification is, which is God's active work in our life. Because it's not like we all of a sudden are able to just fix everything in our lives when we become a Christian. Why don't you show me that Christian and I'll be out of a job? Why do I even exist if that were the case? If when we came to faith, we weren't continuing to grow and in need of help from the Lord himself. And so as God is continuing his work in us, it's, it's here in this sanctification part of the continuum that we get the things that we really like to do, right? We worship on Sunday morning. We sing songs to God. We pray to the Lord. He hears our prayers. We give to God. We hear his word proclaimed and we really hear it. We go out with that word equipped and ready to share the good news of Jesus with others. We study his word throughout the week. We are aware of our sin. And when we become aware of it, we seek to put those things to death by the working of God in us. Sanctification, the life of a Christian. What it is that we're supposed to be about. But there's more. Because, because as we're going that way, as we're going this path of sanctification, we, all, all, we kind of get to this point where, where uh, either by our death where we transition over to, to heaven or if Jesus comes again. 
Our prayer is that Jesus comes again. And, and whether, it's, whether it's our own death in this world or, or whether it's, it's Jesus coming again, there's a moment where we will be glorified, where all of a sudden there is no sin, there are no tears, there are no frustrations or pain or suffering. That's the continuum. That's the path that we're going towards. That's the final point is this, is this glorifying moment. But, but before we transition away from this, we must see that there's something that is, that is infused into every single part of this continuum. My brother-in-law used to, uh, he, he's a turkey hunter. He loves hunting turkey. And uh, he used to cook this wild turkey after he would kill it. And I thought it was the best turkey that I've ever eaten in my life. I thought, this wild turkey is where it's at. That's what I, you know, I thought, man. I can't believe how delicious this is. And uh, Charles, uh, after a while, I, I finally figured out that it wasn't the turkey that I liked. He was, he was injecting it uh, just with like really good stuff that like you could inject like a regular turkey with. You know, and he, he was just cooking it well, right? He was, he was injecting it with something. And, 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 and the same thing is true here. Predestination, choice, justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, uh, injected into each of these parts of God's plan is, is love. And we see that love through adoption. Verses 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It was as if as we looked at these things, that, that yes, in love, it, it certainly informs verse 5, but at the same time, uh, there is a reality where this love also informs verse 4. Because, because we begin to see that in love, he predestined us what? For adoption. God doesn't want uh, a, a just people to bend the knee. We definitely will bend the knee before God if we haven't already. Every single person in the entire world, alive and dead, will bend the knee before God, whether they like it or not. That's not what we see here as the end goal, though. What is all of this for? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, as daughters. That God might call you son, that God might call you daughter. That there, might, that there might be a full redemption of what the revelation of father and mother truly is. You know, what we need to start doing in the Christian church is stop comparing God the Father to the worldly fathers who fault and fail all the time. To the worldly mothers who fault and fail. And rather, we should begin to strive towards the Father himself who has revealed, by the way, maternal instinct. We see this in Isaiah, for instance. Begins to reveal parental love in the deepest of senses. We cannot let God the Father be informed by the world, but rather we need to let the Father himself inform us. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That, by the way, is his purpose. The purpose of his will. This was his choice. This is the God of the universe who existed outside of time, who created time 
for us and move this forward with the intent that we might know him in a fuller way, uh, that we might see him most fully in Father, Son, and Spirit. And whether we like that or not, whether we in our finite minds can think about and justify for ourselves what it looks like and how much suffering and sin and corruption has bore out over however long it has been since this place existed. Whether we can do that, whether we have the answer to those questions like evil, those questions of those whom the Lord himself is, is showing uh, to be uh, uh, vessels of wrath, we might say. Those who are going to hell, if I might be explicit. Whether that offends us or not, whether we can understand it or not, the purpose of his will has been to reveal in love himself in the fullness of his justice and his mercy. And that is hard. But God is God. And we must come to grips with this. Of all people in the world, his people must come to grips with who he is. The world can certainly have questions, and so can we. But we must begin to recognize that God is God. That we indeed are his people by his choice and by his purpose, by his will, by his love, by his adoption, by his son, by his sacrifice, by his justification of us, by his sanctification of us, by his glorification of us, by his indeed love of us. That's so hard for our worldly and sinful minds. But let me try to apply it in a positive, in a positive and encouraging way as, as we think about God's sovereignty, which is mysterious, but it's also so encouraging. And here's the first application as, as we try to close this uh, a massive piece of Scripture out, verses 4, 5, and 6, something that you could think on for, for eternity. Our first application is that unlike a book, it's good to know the full picture in life. Uh, you know, I I'm a book reader. I love books and I love fiction. I love giant fiction books where I think, how am I ever going to finish this thing? It's thousands of pages long, you know, Lord of the Rings style stuff. I love it and I hate it when somebody tries to ruin the story for me and tell me the beginning, the middle, or the end. I don't want to know it. I want to read it. I want to see it. I want to figure it all out. I want to witness it for the first time. I want it to bear out on all of my senses as I try to get into that place with my imagination. But that's a book and not my life. Unlike a book, it is good to know the beginning and the end. It is good to know the big picture of life. Of, of where we are going, of how we got to the place where we're moving. It is good to know all of these things. And God gives it to us. God reveals to us how he is moving. He is choosing his people. He is moving his people forward throughout thousands and thousands of years with wars, with bread raining from the heavens with the proclamation of the word at Centennial ARP. That is in the same breath as what I just said, on purpose. This is a part of God's movement, and, and it's not surprising. We shouldn't be surprised by the plan of Christianity, by, by the plan of God. 
because God gave us the plan. Yes, there are parts of God's sovereignty that are mysterious. For instance, why am I saved? If you have never thought, why am I a Christian when others aren't, think about it. Uh, it's, it's humbling. Rebecca and I have run up against this several times. I think I've shared this before. It's hard when you see people that you feel like are better than you who are not believing in the Lord and his son Jesus. But, but works could never get you there to begin with, could they? And so he chooses weak vessels to reveal his strength. But that's hard. That's mysterious. But it's also encouraging. Because we, the followers of God, find ourselves being moved by God, being changed by God, and, and in a place where we can move forward by God's own working. And he has even shown us how we can do those things in the best way. By not falling into worldly practices, by falling into Christian practices. Those Christian practices not being found by your opinions, but being found in the very word of God. Unlike a book, it's good to know the beginning and the end, the big picture. And then secondly, this is the last application. God's sovereignty is, uh, if I might say it this way, the, the biggest revealer of secret destructive sin, primarily pride. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty, that is his control, his power, his knowledge, his choice. God's sovereignty is a revealer of the secret destructive sin of pride. And if you're still confused, let me ask you a question. Who knows better, God or you? And before you say God, we have to be very careful. Because if we say that, if we say that God knows better than me, then we do not have a problem with predestination and choice. Only if we are going to try to do battle to match wits with the Lord himself will we have an issue with God choosing. Even for the non-believer, for the one who doesn't believe in God, I've done this exercise. And I said, hey, just imagine that there is a God though. Who would be better at the choice? Would it be you or would it be God? The answer is always God. It has to be. And that's for the non-believer. For us who have been changed by him. Who, who see with eyes that can see and hear with ears that can hear. Who acknowledge not only God's existence but God's working. I think that it's really a non-issue. If we really boil it down to that question. Who knows better? God or you? Because God's control is perfect. Because God is perfect. God is good. Therefore, even when we don't understand, even when suffering comes, even when frustration comes, even when he saves me instead of my good friend that I think is way better than me, God is perfect. And God's sovereignty, though mysterious in that sense, is encouraging. Because I know then that there is a reason beyond myself for his working in any given situation. Let me just finish 
and conclude with this illustration. It's one I used with college students all the time. I would have this discussion with college students a lot. Uh, first press, but on campus at USC, things like that. Uh, when we're thinking about God's sovereignty and we're trying to be encouraged, we're trying to positively move forward, we're trying to figure out what it means for us boots on the ground. Let's stick right there, boots on the ground. Uh, uh, Stephen Diaz isn't here, but my military men, uh, y'all understand the thought process of this. Uh, I would speak with my grandfather a little bit about this. You know, one of the, uh, one of the more uh, uh, frightening, uh, uh, frightening realities of war uh, is that you don't know what's going to happen. I had a good friend, his name was, uh, I called him Robbie, his name was Robert. Uh, he said that uh, in Iraq, they used to have to bust down doors. You, you know Robbie. Uh, he had to bust down doors. He said, you never knew who was going to be behind the door. Was it a mom? If it was a mom, was it a mom with a gun? Or was it a mom holding her child? What do I do? Right? It was the unknown, the immense fear of not knowing the next thing. By the way, he got blown against a wall by a terrorist, a, a little homemade explosion, but he's okay. Uh, still has some complications to this day. But that was the fear. That was the dread. And, and sometimes the Christian life can be like that. What if I give up this sinful practice that's making me a lot of money? What if I uh, am not prideful and I tell somebody that I am weak and that I am a sinner? What if for a single moment I considered that it wasn't somebody else's fault, but it was my fault due to my own sin and weakness? What if? What if? And then God himself tells us, listen, yeah, it was your fault, first of all, by the way. Uh, but, but God himself tells us, this, this life is going to be like a battle. There's going to be injury. There's going to be hurt. You're going to cause hurt. And you're going to cause injury. And you will be injured. It's going to be bad sometimes. But let me tell you something encouraging. You will make it through the war. I know for a fact that you will survive. I'm telling this to you now. How do you know? I'm God. How can I believe that? Because I've given you your belief. That's what Ephesians tells us. It will be hard. You might even need to put on armor, Ephesians chapter 6. You might need to put on humility, Ephesians chapter 4. You might need to recognize where you're weak, Ephesians chapter 4. But I'm telling you that I have done this work for you and I will see you in glory. That lets us step with a little bit more fervor. It lets us move with a little bit more confidence. And it's all from God's work. God's sovereignty, yes, it's mysterious. But it is also extremely encouraging. In a world that would seek to discourage you and even kill you, you cannot be killed. And you cannot, you cannot be discouraged when God himself is the one encouraging you. And sometimes dragging you down, but listen, Encouragement's just positive movement. If he's got to drag you, it's still positive movement. If he's got to push you or roll you, but hopefully we can do a little walking too. That is where we're going in Ephesians. God's sovereignty is mysterious, but encouraging. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for your goodness and your control and your power. For this plan that you have. For the purpose. For your love. And for the praise that we want to render you because of it. God, help us in these things. Please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.